Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Laura Chambers, who is an Assistant Professor in the Division of Gynecologic Oncology in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the James Cancer Hospital uh, in the Ohio State University Medical Center in Ohio. And uh, the reason for this um, discussion is going to be the recently published article titled, Is There a Low-Risk Patient Population in Advanced Epithelial Ovarian Cancer? A critical analysis that was published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So Laura, thank you so much uh, once again for uh, joining us and uh, for accepting our invitation to discuss this really great paper. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here to chat more about it. Excellent. So um, we have lots of questions and hopefully we'll be able to get through all of them. Yeah. Uh, wanted to start by uh, discussing as to why is it important to classify or, or determine which patients with ovarian cancer are low risk and, and which are high risk? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of reasons for this. You know, historically, I think we had these like very defined characteristics that we knew patients or high risk, things like stage, residual disease after surgery. But I think more and more we're understanding how heterogeneous of a disease ovarian cancer is. You know, I think we used to think even just within the histologies, oh, they're, you know, mucinous or high grade serous. But I think even in high grade serous patients now, we're understanding so much more that the diseases are fundamentally different in different patients. Um, and so I think that being able to classify that is really helpful for a couple of things. I mean, I think making treatment decisions for sure, but then I think also for patient prognostication too, you know, I feel like we have patients, you know, even just yesterday in clinic, I had a lady that's had a great response to frontline chemo, good surgery. And she's sitting there. When's my cancer going to come back? How long am I going to live? You know? And I think that we just don't have those answers for people. And I think to be able to kind of, we have so much the frontline care of women with ovarian cancer is just even more complicated than it ever used to be, right? Mm. We've got all these new maintenance options. We have all these new, you know, exciting biomarkers. Um, and I think we were hoping with this paper to kind of synthesize this together um, to be able to make it a little bit more helpful for clinicians, but maybe we confused it a little bit too. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's great. And, uh, and you mentioned, yeah. you know, the, the complexity of the, of the treatment of these patients, um, yeah. and particularly also obviously with, uh, with, uh, maintenance therapy. And I was wondering if you can share with us, you know, your thoughts on, on the, uh, low risk and high risk stratification, um, and as, a, as it pertains to the role of bevacizumab and the outcomes of, of uh, patients uh, that are studied. Yeah. Well, so thing, you know, going back to ICON-7 and 218, um, you know, what they did for those high, high risk and low risk groups was they considered for ICON-7 stage threes with more than one centimeter, stage fours, and then inoperable patients. And then 218 was stage fours, stage threes with greater than a centimeter of disease. And so I think what's really interesting there is they were really different patient populations in those studies. Like 218 was 66%, um, ICON-7 was 30%. But I think when those studies were designed and those high and low risk groups were, were kind of put together, like that was the best we had, right? Like we, we weren't really thinking of these things in terms of HRD mutational status and biomarkers and that type of thing. So I think that, um, you know, I think that that made absolute sense. You know, I think that the really cool thing or thinking about the data, 
you know, we, we, we know that for women that were included in those trials, you know, there was a benefit for PFS of Avastin or Bevacizumab along all of those groups. You know, we saw that there was a PFS benefit in 218 and the Nikon 7. We saw that the high-risk groups in both studies benefited from the addition of Bevacizumab. But then I think it's the overall survival thing, or the overall survival data, where it gets a little bit more confusing mm-hmm. because, you know, in the 218 sub-analysis, the high risk, there wasn't a benefit. In the ICON-7 sub-analysis, we saw there was a benefit of addition of bevacizumab by about nine months. So that's pretty good. Um, and then, when, but then interestingly, when we took that ICON-7 high-risk group and applied it back to 218, it didn't quite pan out that way. Um, so I think it's hard to know, like, what is true. You know, I think that we know from that, that the all comers and the high risk groups definitely have a PFS benefit. And both studies showed that the stage fours also had an overall survival benefit. Um, But then I think the question becomes then, well, how do you apply that? Who should we treat? Who are the people that can benefit? Um, And I think a lot of that is still up for discussion, right? (laughs) Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, obviously you're, you're focusing on, on the bevacizumab, but I think another point is the issue of uh, PARP inhibitors. And, and right. you know, uh, what do we learn with regards to the evaluation of high versus low risk stratification as it pertains to PARP? Yeah. Well, so I think what was really the way that they did the high and low risk groups for, you know, so the way that this had been evaluated was in solo one and then also Paolo one. Um, and the way that they defined high risk and low risk was a little bit different. So the high risk groups in both of those studies were stage fours, stage threes with any residual, um, inoperable stage threes, and then also patients that had neoadjuvant chemotherapy who underwent interval debulking surgery, which I think is just an interesting inclusion considering we have, you know, four randomized prospective trials that show equivalent there. Um, but anyway, those were the patients we considered high risk. And then the low risk patients were those that were had stage three upfront interval, uh, upfront surgery with an R0 resection. So, um, you know, for this, for solo one high risk patients were about 56% of those included for Paolo one, it was about 70%. Um, but I think what's really interesting here, and maybe a little bit different than the studies of, of, of the addition of bevacizumab is we see that the benefit of the addition of part maintenance is is even more marked among the low risk groups. Mm. Um, And so, you know, one of the things that we looked at in this study was we we specifically like broke down the hazard ratios um, and found that like in the women that were low risk that had BRCA mutant ovarian cancer, the hazard ratio is 0.11, you know, in the high risk BRCA was 0.37. So I think, traditionally people had thought, well, if they're low risk patients, maybe we can deescalate therapy. But I think that these studies really kind of challenge that paradigm and say, well, you know, even the low risk women really seem to benefit the most. Um, and so I think that the, the two questions of like the low and high risk in the bevacizumab versus PARP are a little bit different because they have, I think that for the PFS benefit and the OS benefit, we see that in the stage fours for bevacizumab, but then for the PARP inhibitors specifically, those low-risk women really benefit. And, you know, based on those hazard ratio, you could say that they benefit the most. So, yeah, 
Yeah, no, I mean, really, really important information as you highlight yeah. with regards to the benefit, particularly in the in the low risk patients. Right. Um, you know, so some of the questions that that we have come from our fellows in in the journal, and uh, this first couple of questions is from Anissa Mburu. She's in Kenya, okay. uh, and she asks, um, "Do the authors of this uh, study see any potential issues in setting up uh, future clinical trials with a dichotomous classification?" that involves a treatment group versus a non-treatment cohort um, to categorically assess outcomes? Yeah, I think that's, it's such a great question. Um, you know, I would argue that based upon, you know, our discussion and the analysis of these, I don't think these are quite ready for prime time yet. You know, I think that one of the things that was really interesting, and so to share a little history behind this article was I know there have been some discussions with people a lot smarter than me, um, <laughs> Dr. Coleman and Dr. O'Malley and Dr. Herzog for a long time about this question. And then they would argue against that statement. <laughs> for sure they would. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I, you know, we, there was some discussions that we'd had and I think that they, you know, I think where we started with our, like the high and low risk and where we ended is different because I think that this high and low risk group if we're talking about PARP inhibitors and vaccine are kind of different places, but I don't think that either way, these are ready for prime time yet. And I think that, you know, one of the things that me and one of the co-authors we talked about a lot was like, you know, instead of using stage three and four, you know, suboptimal stage threes and stage fours as our high risk, like maybe our new high risk are our HRP patients. Like those are the women that seem to do the worst. Those are the women that we don't have. We don't have, you know, you know, PARP don't derive as much benefit. Um, and so I think we don't quite understand that just yet. So, but I, I agree. I think this is a great question because I think as we learn more about these diseases and high and low risk, and then we put together studies trying to answer those questions, like what is ethical, right? How can we deescalate care in women that are high risk? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that one of the ways this is being done really well is an endometrial cancer, you know, and I expect that, you know, based on with some of the TCGA data and now our four classifications and now we're, you know, even within a decade, we're now using that for treatment decisions. So I think that hopefully we'll be able to learn a bit from that and hopefully in the next, you know, in the coming years, be able to apply that to ovarian cancer care. Yeah, really important. Yeah. Um, her second question from Anissa is, uh, I think it follows up on, on the, the same principle. Um, she asked, following the categorization of low-risk patients, according to the studies you mentioned before, like the SOLO-1 or the Paolo-1, yeah. uh, do you think that this classification may have a bearing in the future with regards to changes in the staging of advanced ovarian cancer? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. You know, um, I, I recently learned at the NRG meeting about the upcoming 2023 FICO staging for endometrial cancer that's changing, incorporating molecular classification and LVSI and other things. Um, and I think that, you know, I don't think we're quite there yet in ovarian cancer, but I could see that potentially, you know, um, molecular classification, HRD and BRCA status being included in the future. I don't think we're quite there, but mm -hmm. I think it's a, an interesting idea as we look towards a new way of thinking of endometrial cancer that maybe that's in the future for ovary too. Yeah, and actually as a perfect segue for the next question, Teresa Pan from Austria, um, she's asking, um, do you think that we're moving towards a, a molecular classification in ovarian cancer with uh, um, you know, certainly the, uh, predicting the best therapeutic option and the prognosis 
um, such as we have reached in endometrial cancer? In other words, how far away are we from that? Yeah. You know, I'm sure every single person, every single oncologist in the country could give you a different, uh, you know, answer here. Um, but I think we are, you know, I think that, um, you know, in the last decade, the studies that have come out with regards to the frontline, you know, use of PARP inhibitors, um, I think that most of us are probably having those discussions pretty early on in our practice about, you know, getting genetic counseling early, getting HRD status early so we can use those decisions to guide front loan maintenance. So I think that we're, we are incorporating more and more of that. Um, and I think that as far as how far away, you know, I think that one of the things that we haven't really done is then assess that really prospectively, you know, about kind of grouping these patients into these three categories and, and what that means beyond frontline maintenance, beyond, you know, platinum sensitive recurrence, beyond into platinum resistance, like what does that mean? But I definitely we're moving in that direction for sure. Yeah. And um, this next question comes from uh, Jovansa Koshiashvili in uh, Georgia. And it kind of goes along the, I had a, a recent podcast with Anil Sud, and uh, I know, you know, um, regarding the morphology of advanced ovarian cancer. And uh, the question from Javansa is, you know, given the recent updates and the classifications, are there any potential um, histomorphologic, molecular, proteomic differences in these subgroups that, that you see are, you know, the, 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 the targets of where we should go moving forward? Yeah, I think that, um, I think there's so much to be done in this space and so much to learn. You know, I am. Um, just going back to you know the clinic, and I feel like we have discussions with patients all the time about when is my cancer coming back? How am I gonna respond? And there's so much that we just don't know. And we chalk it up to tumor biology, right? We, mm -hmm. we just kind of, but there's there's got to be more to learn that we can use to, you know, prognosticate and help us make decisions and talk to patients. Um, I didn't watch that podcast or listen to that podcast, but I'm assuming that you talked to about doctors to Dr. Sid about his paper in JAMA open, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I read that paper for the first time about a month ago and I've like thought about it very often since then, because I thought that what they did was so, it was so simple, but it made, it makes sense. I mean, basically what they did was, you know, they kind of classified these patients into two groups and looked simply at like how the tumors looked and then did some really cool um, translational analysis and show that like, even down to the molecular level, like these ovarian cancers, even just by how they look and how they behave, there's so much difference there for diseases that we've always lumped as being the same. So I think that, you know, I loved that paper. I thought it was really brilliant. And, um, you know, him talking about it at NRG was also just fantastic to hear. So, um, yeah, I think that there's a lot to do for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's a it's a great paper to review, and certainly encourage our, our listeners to uh, to listen to to that podcast as well. Yeah, um, I'll have to check it out too. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, now, the next question is uh, again from uh, Teresa Pan in Austria, and uh, she talks about you know how do we take into consideration BRCA status and HRD status as it pertains to classifying these patients as high versus low risk in ovarian cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah I mean, that's, it's a great question. Cause I feel like right now that we have a lot of like ways of evaluating patients, but they're not really integrated and synthesized, right? Like the way that 
these studies considered high and low risk or stage and, you know, residual disease and that type of thing. But then obviously like the molecular stuff plays a huge weight. Um, and so I just think that we need to study this more, you know? Um, and I think that, you know, the, the, the idea of like the, using the genetic factors and then the molecular testing, you know, I think that um, in my own practice, I, you know, I send genetics and patients go to genetics very early. I send um, HRD testing up front to have that information to guide. But I think it's, it's a lot for patients to understand, you know, I mean, I think that like that first visit for ovarian cancer, when you're talking to them about their disease and what they, you know, and the ways to treat them and neoadjuvant chemo, primary debulking, and then you're talking about genetics and, mm-hmm. you know, PARPs and HIPEC and event, like there's so much to talk through. Um, and so I try and keep it as simple as possible. And, you know, and then, you know, we talk about the genetics and then I usually do the HRD piece as a separate piece of being negative and positive, but I think that there's definitely more. Um, and we know that not all HRD mutational status is the same, right? We know there's a tremendous amount of variability there too. So um, I don't know if those definitions necessarily need to be abandoned, but I think right now we're going off the best that they can. But I feel like my hope is that with more research, more pro, you know, prospective data, that we're going to be able to hone that in and hopefully kind of take the molecular and then the historical stuff and be able to synthesize that in a way that we can be even better at predicting stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. You bring up a, a really important point because obviously it, it is really an exciting time for us as you went oncologists as we get more information and so much more data. But, you know, obviously those discussions with a patient is where the patient really just wants to know, how am I going to do? And, and, yeah, and, right. and, you know, will this disease come back and, and how do we deal with it at that time? Um, yeah. This next question comes from Ryan Khan, who's a fellow at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And he compliments you and your team. He says, this was an excellent distillation of the current state of the science surrounding ovarian cancer treatments. One thing your review has made clear is that testing for BRCA mutation and homologous recombination is essential. As it stands right now, HRD testing is based on proprietary methodology with different thresholds for loss of heterozygosity, uh, telomere, allelic imbalance, and large-scale transitions. Is therefore feasible that patients who may test HRD with one analysis uh, may taste may, may test with another and vice versa? Um, with such important treatment decisions surrounding the results of HR testing, where do you see the landscape moving towards in the future? And will there be a more standardized analysis? Um, I know it's a long question, <laughs> but. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think it's a very important point. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, you know, one of the things that um, making the transition over the last year and a half from being a trainee to having a practice is I feel like in your training, you're just trying to cram up all the piece of information in, and then you get out and you're like, oh my goodness, like ordering the testing and it gets very confusing and which companies like there's, a, it's a lot to, to digest. Um, and I think that this what this question is really excellent because I think there's a lot here that we don't know. And I think that we do really need to prospectively kind of assess, you know, what the prognostic differences within these testing companies are and how it influences patients. Um, Cause ideally we would have something standard, right? I mean, I think that, you know, 
at most institutions I know in the US, um, you know, doing the uh, mismatch repair testing, mismatch repair IHC up front is done as standard on endometrial cancers. And so, you know, I think if there was some way to kind of make that leap for HRD, knowing that it significantly impacts treatment decisions, sort of like HER2 and ERPR testing and breast cancer, that type of thing. Um, but I think that before we kind of need to understand exactly like, is this something that's an easy dichotomy or are there like shades of gray that are going to influence um, the way that patients do for sure. And I, I just don't think we know that yet. Um, but I think that's, what, it's a really good point. Yeah. And, and he follows that with, um, uh, he says, you know, as you mentioned, many recent studies have stratified high-risk patient populations as having stage three with residual disease in all stage four ovarian cancers. Um, various studies have shown patients with stage four disease who undergo complete gross resection during primary cytoreductive surgery has significantly different survival outcomes compared to stage four patients with any residual disease. Uh, because of this, do you feel future studies that include high-risk cohorts should be even further stratified to only stage three, four with residual disease following surgery? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we know, I mean, our data, our historical data is, you know, strong that women that go to surgery and have residual disease have, you know, they have significantly worse outcomes. We, we all, we definitely know that. And then I think integrating, you know, the molecular piece of this, like if you have a patient that, you know, has neoadjuvant chemotherapy, has a, you know, a fair response, goes to the operating room, they have suboptimal disease at surgery, and then you know that they're HRP, like, you know that that person's at high risk, you know, like, you know that you have to, like, that's going to be a person that's going to be tough to treat and tough to, you know, um, and so I think that, I think that's, a, it's a really important point, like, we know that these women, who have residual disease at surgery significantly have worse outcomes. And so I, I think that that's a really important consideration that Ryan brings up. Like, yeah, I think so, you know, but I think that, you know, as we know too, like designing these trials is really complicated, right? You know, we want our trials to be able to answer these very specific questions. Um, but even just getting things through to answer the questions in the general population is tough, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of why we for a long time relied on these like, post hoc exploratory analysis to kind of give us the data, but then obviously that's not the best way to do that either. Um, but yeah, I think priority should be given to those patient populations, especially as we kind of understand how the molecular characteristics influence it too. Fantastic. So uh, perfect segue to our um, the next couple of questions. Uh, next one is a much shorter question from Jennifer Davis Oliveira from the UK. And she uh, specifically asked about that. Um, how do we ensure that disease uh, management changes are based on adequately powered research uh, processes? Yeah, you know, I think that this is, um, it's, it's a really, you know, interesting thing to discuss. You know, one of the things that I really loved about writing this paper was spending a lot of time talking with Dr. Coleman about <laughs> his, um, his feelings on post-hoc analyses. Um, you know, because we have our trials are, you know, the trials are written, um, you know, with this, you know, clear language and clear inclusion criteria. But then oftentimes, you know, we, we have the, our, you know, primary endpoint, and then there's kind of the, the stuff that happens after that. Um, and I think that, you know, oftentimes in our training, like in our fellowships and our residencies, we don't do a lot of like really good statistical 
teaching and like learning the rigor of statistics and trials. And I think it's really important that that is something that is discussed more mm-hmm. um, because I think that when you really understand trial design and how trials are developed and then understand kind of when they, we look back and we do these analysis, um, you know, I think that, that it's it's hard, you know, and I think that um, I think that's something that probably needs to trickle down from above is like the, we take our trials as they're designed and then we can look. But um, I think that as in, in academic medicine and, you know, as teachers and educators, I think we have to do kind of our job to educate the next generation that like this is what the trial says in its pure form. And then these are the things that we find after. Um, but, yeah, I think it's, it's hard to do on a global scale, though, right? You know, like. Um, you know, as I'm sure, you know, just to bring up lack really quickly. (laughs) I mean, that I feel like is a trial that has been really subject to people trying to piece parts of it out um, and find, you know, maybe it's safe here, maybe it's safe here. But I think that ultimately, like you have to kind of go with the trial was designed in this format to look at this woman. And then our job is we kind of have to, like we have the best we can do is apply it to all of those patients. So no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. And, and uh, such an important point. And, you know, I think this is a call to our societies, you know, as to go uh, IGCS, SGO, to really uh, um, focus on on um, providing that level of training for for our, our young G1 oncologists um, on on the, the trial design and, and trial interpretation as well. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, uh, you brought up the point of, of the post hoc analyses, and, and I'm really glad that you 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 highlighted the fact, and, and you mentioned it briefly with regards to like we can use post hoc analyses to change yeah. practice. So this next question is from Giulio Bonaldo in, in Italy, um, and he asked, "What is your suggestion about the interpretation of evidence derived from post hoc analyses?" Uh, do you apply it in, in clinical practice? Do you not? Um, yeah. What can the risk of false discovery and inaccurate yeah. inference in sub-analyses be minimized? Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of these, um, a lot of these decisions and these discussions happen in the exam room, right? Um, you know, we, we, like, I think, you know, 218 is a, is a perfect example. Like we know that in the all-comer population, there's a PFS benefit. We know that in the high-risk population, there's a PFS benefit, but then when we look at overall survival, there's not, but stage fours, right? Stage fours do have an overall survival benefit in that trial. And we saw that in ICON-7. So in my training, you know, there was a lot of, there was um, a lot of people that, you know, trained me that, that would, you know, do bevacizumab maintenance in patients that had stage four disease. And I think that that's something that's done pretty commonly. Um, but I do think it's really important to talk through the data with patients. You know, I think that anytime we're adding something or we're doing additional drug, I think that it does have risk. And I think there's some people that definitely like are high, you know, we know that they're high risk, right. And we want to give them something else, but I think that that's really where you have to sit down and kind of talk through the data. And, you know, I think from, in my practice, you know, I think in women that have you know, in, for frontline ovarian cancer who have, you know, the negative um, BRCA mutation, HRP, you know, who are stage four patients or have residual disease, like those are probably the people that I will talk through that Avastin discussion more within clinic. You know, I think that it's definitely a worthwhile discussion. I think that, you know, the, the data, the trial does support PFS benefit in all comers. So I think that it's a reasonable discussion to have. Um, 
But there are some, you know, those stage four patients, I think if it was a family member of mine, I'd want that discussion to be had with them too. Um, but I think that's really where, um, you know, th that discussion belongs there with the patients. Yeah. So what do you think, Dr. Mary? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's certainly it's always uh, it's always a, a an important process in terms of how we have those discussions with with patients. But yeah. I think also, you know, as you mentioned, it, it the importance is highlighted by the fact that we should be very um, transparent and unbiased with regards to how we right. provide that distillation of the information that we learn be totally. a prospective randomized trial from a post hoc analysis yeah. um, to those patients. And, and, and I really believe that obviously what's most important is to take away our own personal bias and, and, yeah. and really provide right. the data as it should be interpreted. Right. Yeah. Um, so um, Laura, this next question from Julio uh, Bonaldo again is um, asking a little bit more about uh, neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy and uh, and the treatment after interval debulking surgery. Um, his question is particularly in your practice. How do you assess uh, the the response to frontline therapy? Uh, do you go by uh, serum marker CA125, a particular type of score? or a reduction percentage in, in residual disease? Yeah, great question. I'm sure many would give a different, you know, varying answers. Um, you know, in my practice, I, I follow C1, you know, scans upfront scans, usually after cycle three of neoadjuvant chemotherapy to assess, you know, adequacy of interval debulking surgery or feasibility of interval debulking surgery. Um, and then, you know, giving, you know, typically with a plan to give three to four cycles prior to surgery and then additional three after, um, I usually get scans after that th third cycle and then, um, assess their C125. Um, if scans have, you know, there's no evidence of disease on scans and the C125 is normalized. That's typically what I go off of. Um, in my institution, we do, um, do some pathologic staging of or scoring of the tumors too. Uh, and that's a new thing for me since I'm coming here to the Ohio State. Um, and that's something I consider, but typically for me, I make that decision based on radiographical evidence and then CA125. Yeah. And I was wondering also, do, do you routinely use um, uh, laparoscopy as a, as a mode of assessment for reduction at that point or, or not? not so I generally, I generally don't. But it's something that I've thought a lot more about as an, you know, in my first couple of years of being an attending. Um, in the patients that I've taken to the operating room so far um, for interval cytoreductive surgery, I've, I've, based on their scans and their CA125 response, I really haven't had a concern about whether I would be able to do an optimal cytoreductive surgery. But I think that if I had that concern, then I may consider it. And I actually have a lady coming up here soon that I was thinking about doing it um, to see if that would help, you know, help prior to making a big incision. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it also, a lot of it um, depends on the quality of the imaging um, interpretation that you have at your institution. For sure. Often yeah. They can be very, very informative. Yeah. And on the other side of the spectrum, they can be very vague. And then therefore that's where it may, may be useful. Yeah. Um, How about you? What do you, in your practice? Yeah, uh, you know, in, in my practice, uh, typically is those patients where there may be a concern that there may still be some element of serosal disease, carcinomatosis, sure. where if I have any doubt, then I think laparoscopy might be very helpful. 
to yeah. making the determination and then just continuing on to three additional cycles of chemotherapy. Yeah. Interestingly, I think that there's a lot of patients that are receiving six rather than three or four um, for, for, for various reasons. Many, yeah. many times patients are doing so well that they say, well, uh, you know, things are going well. I'm responding well. Uh, yeah. My quality of life is great. So why don't, yeah. we, why don't we keep going? So I think, you know, certainly that's another question that we've done podcasts on the three, yeah. six on the adjuvant yeah. chemotherapy. So it's, it's, an, it's another interesting point of debate. Um, yeah. Uh, Laura, um, Nuria Gusti from Barcelona, she was asking uh, a bit about the um, addition of uh, PARP with or without bevacizumab. Yeah. The uh, frontline treatment of patients um, with uh, BRCA wild type who are HRD negative. Uh, your thoughts on, on that patient population? Yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, this is another area that I feel like, like you talked about earlier, like is really important when we're discussing with patients to remove our biases, right. And like talk through the data. Um, you know, I, you know, I think that the Prima study obviously has allowed for the approval of frontline niraparib for all patients, right. I mean, we have that approval. Um, and so I think it's something that I definitely discuss with every single patient, um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's so much to like, when we have a new endometrial cancer patient, right. You see them in the office, you tell them they have endometrial cancer, you talk through some risk factors and it's, you tell them, you know, we're going to go to surgery as long as they're a good surgery. It's a pretty, it's pretty simple. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's stuff that comes after when you have your path report, but like the, the that for it's, you know, it's more simpler. Whereas I feel like ovarian cancer, that first visit, the first couple of visits, there's so much to talk about. You know, there's the genetics and there's primary surgery, interval surgery. There's just a lot um, to discuss. And so oftentimes like fitting all that in is a, a tremendous amount. And so usually I start this conversation like cycle two or, you know, mm -hmm. one to two after I feel like we've kind of settled in, gotten to know each other, but I think it's a really important thing. And I think to, to understand, to say, like, there is definitely a benefit of, you know, frontline part for all patients, the way that the study and the intention to treat population was designed. But then we know that women with HRD mutations and BRCA mutations do have, you know, significantly more benefit. Um, and I think a lot of that decision for me really weighs on how they've done during treatment and like toxicities that they've had and performance status and mm -hmm. their values for after treatment too. Like, you know, there are many women that go through like six, seven months of hard treatment like this, and they just want to be done, you know, and I totally respect that. And there are some people that really are on the side of like, I've gone through seven months of hard treatment. I want to do everything possible that I can. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that by the time, like, I think it's a really personal decision based on every patient. It's super individualized, but I feel like for me in my practice, like usually by the time we get there, we've discussed it enough that we're kind of on, aligned on the same page about what's the right thing to do. Um, and so I do offer it for patients. Um, but I think that my, the way I counsel is definitely different than I would counsel for a woman that have a BRCA mutation or HRD, um, HRD positive tumor. So. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think it's also, you mentioned something very important is how they've done in the toxicities because yeah. Now for many patients, they 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 consider well, yeah, sure, let's just keep going. And but you need to to pause and say, well, these 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 treatments are not without potential toxicities, and outlining those. And for many of the patients, will say, well, hold off, uh, maybe I'm not so enthusiastic about continuing in that right. particular patient population. 
Right. Um, so the next question from Nuria is also, I think, something that comes up also in uh, in many patients' discussion is the role of bevacizumab plus PARP inhibitor in this frontline uh, treatment in patients with BRCA mutations or HRD positive patients. Yeah. No, um, a great question. And I think that something that we're all trying to find our way with how this all fits together, right? Because I think we all wish that um, the Paola's study had one additional arm <laughs> that had compared just to PARP inhibitors alone, because I think then that would help us make our decision a little bit easier. Um, you know, in my mind, that, you know, if there's a patient that I'm, you know, I feel would benefit from bevacizumab, so um, you know, upfront stage four disease, or they have, you know, stage three disease and, you know, with residual disease after surgery, that type of thing. And I'm considering the addition of Avastin. Um, and then they have, you know, those would be the patients that I would also be recommending a PARP inhibitor too. So, um, you know, I think that if you're in those populations of women, like I would definitely favor the PARP over the Avastin, but if those are patients that I would be considering the, bevacizumab because of those historical high and low risk factors, then I think it would be, I think it's reasonable to consider. I know that it's a very practice and clinician dependent decision. Um, but, um, I mean, I definitely think there's role for the regimen for sure. I think that it's, um, you know, just as I mentioned, I think is the addition of Avastin to PARP, it does, is that, is that significantly synergized versus the PARP alone? And we just don't know that. So, yeah. Yeah, we we uh we actually recently just did a podcast with uh, Benoit Yu on uh, Kalem uh, score and uh, yeah. and the GOG two uh, eighteen trial and uh, and it was exactly that you know he said well ideal world if we can go back to some of these trials and add more arms to the, to the trial right right so it would be great but the cost of that obviously it's uh it's impacting yeah um so uh just getting on to uh, the last few questions i want to be respectful of your time andrea rosati from uh, italy he asks um to date in the high risk brca mutated uh, or hrd positive population um which maintenance strategy is the most evidence based um the one that we have the most solid data, uh, only PARP, only BEV, or that combination? So he's asking that in just the BRCA patients or all patients? He, he specifically asked about the high-risk uh, yeah. BRCA mutator. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, you know, I think if we just look based upon solely hazard ratios alone and the magnitude of benefit that we saw, you know, I think looking at, you know, the solo one study and, and Paola one study, you know, the hazard ratios for the high risk BRCA and, and high risk HRD um, are like 0.37 and 0.39. So, you know, if we look to then comparing that back to the high risk groups that were in the ICON 7 and 218, like those hazard ratios are about, you know, 0 0.7, 0 0.6. So I definitely think that there's more magnitude of benefit and potential significance of benefit with, um, you know, with the addition of part, but I think that, you know, cross trial comparisons are tough, right. And we're kind of told to not do that, but as, as it is alluring to want to do it. Um, so I think that if you're going to prioritizing one thing in those women that have HRD mutations or BRC mutations, I mean, I think the 
the benefit from the data, so the most evidence-based, I guess, to support PARP inhibitors. But then, you know, I think that, um, you know, for whatever, if you choose in your practice to treat all patients with Avastin or stage four patients or residual disease patients with Avastin, I do think that that's reasonable then to add that too. But I think if we're just, you know, I think the, the magnitude and the, the thing that's most evidence-based based on solely the statistical value would be, um, you know, the, the PARP inhibitor. But again, you know, those are, all of those hazard ratios broken down specifically by mutational status and risk are again, those, you know, exploratory subs of analysis. So, um, you know, making those decisions is, is you know, tough kind of with everything that we've already yeah. discussed as post-hoc decisions. Uh, absolutely. Um, Laura, as a last question, I mean, getting back to the point of the, the classification of the low risk, and I, and I saw you put that in, in quotations in, in the title of the, of the paper. Yeah. Um, when you see your patients in your practice, um, who do you who do you consider that low risk population and, and how do you on a day-to-day -day basis, do you say, well, this is how I manage these patients or this is how I view these patients yeah. differently um, as an overall summary for, for our audience? Yeah. Well, so like I, I mentioned earlier, like I think as, as, as we wrote this article and as we discussed it, you know, I think that, and, and one of the things when we talked about like the historical piece at the beginning of this article is like the way that we always saw high and low risk and the way it is now. Well, I think the initial high and low risk was, you know, residual disease stage fours. And we thought, you know, it was those patients do worse. Mm -hmm. Then when I think you take that framework, that paradigm, and you apply it to what we know now, when we are separating patients out by mutational status, that historical high and low risk doesn't really fit. Right. So we know that like, if we're applying that traditional high and low risk, we're still seeing like women with BRCA mutations with a hazard ratio of 0.11, like those women like are doing much better with a PARP inhibitor. And so my feelings on high and low risk really changed as I analyzed the literature and I wrote this, this study, because from, I, I truly feel that it's like the women with HRP tumors are probably at the highest risk because we have, you know, they, they're not going to benefit from a frontline part. Um, and I think it's only, only time will tell then what that will really mean for, you know, later line therapy and therapy when they're platinum resistant and like the more of the biologic mechanisms of how these women respond to tumors, even outside of just platinum and, and part. Um, so I think in my practice, you know, I, I talk a little bit about when, you know, we, I think we have more strong data about, you know, BRCA mutational status and how that is a prognostic factor. Mm -hmm. And I definitely discuss that with women. Um, I think that the HRD mutational status and that as prognostic is definitely less well-defined. Um, so I normally kind of discuss that more in the implications of, of PARP and the frontline. Um, but I, I look forward to having more data to be able to talk that through with patients, because like you said earlier, like, that's what people want to know. You know, those are the questions that we get asked every day. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I think th those are really important uh, statements and, uh, and, you know, and particularly also with regards to this classification, you know, of course, obviously every patient would like to hear I'm a low risk patient, um, right. but I think it's, right. it's, it's important to put that in context and where we are as it pertains to, to the literature. Yeah. And so, I think, and yeah. just like we were, so we were just saying, you know, talking about Dr. Soot's paper and like, you know, that's one way of analyzing these tumors, but there's so much more to do, you know, um, you know, down to the, the way that these tumors, you know, behave biologically and mechanisms of resistance. And, 
you know, I think even in, you know, now that we're more in this, at least, you know, I think the practices that I've worked out of getting, you know, more molecular testing and more earlier and using those decisions to guide frontline and, 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 and more, you know, the, the lines that come shortly after that, instead of just like getting, you know, molecular testing when they're platinum resistant, and then you're trying to figure it out. And I think that, um, you know, I, I'm excited about the future. Like, I think that there's a lot to do. And I think that we're in this really cool area where, you know, for a long time, it was just carbotaxol and done. And I think that now it's really exciting that we're, we have these other options and now we get to discuss these things. And now we're starting to learn who are going to benefit the most. And then I think that but then the next phase comes in, right? Of, okay, well, we know that there's these women, the HRP women that are the, the most you know, maybe these are the new high risk. And then what can we do for these patients? Like what beyond part do we have to offer in the frontline setting and Bastin and part? So yeah, it's an exciting time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Laura, I mean, I mean, it's been really so informative to, uh, to speak with you. I wanted to ask you one, one last question. Yeah. Um, um, you know, for, for the patients who may be listening, uh, what, what would you say to them are like the key questions to ask your doctor about this topic? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's, I love when patients come in and they've done some reading because I think it makes for like a lot more like discussion and um, talking. I think that, you know, um, you know, patients should understand, patients should expect to come into a new visit, you know, if they have an ovarian cancer to have discussions about, you know, the sequencing of treatment. I think that's really important that your, your provider should discuss with you neoadjuvant chemo versus, um, going right to the operating room and discuss that. I think that the provide, you know, early genetic tests, early genetic counseling, early HRD testing, those things are essential. And if they're not happening, I think it's important to ask why. Um, and then I think that, you know, there's just so many things that we have to offer now. And I think it's really important to ask your provider, you know, how could a PARP inhibitor benefit me? How could a Vastin benefit me? How could HIPAC benefit me? Um, you know, how, what clinical trials are available? Like, I think that these are, you know, those are the things that we're learning how are exciting. Um, and so I think that, you know, patients should feel empowered to ask about that. Well, great. Thank you so, so much. Uh, yeah, thanks for having uh, me. This was great. Yeah. Now, this, this has been really an enjoyable uh, discussion. Uh, learned a great deal uh, from having the discussion with you. Um, would love to have you back. I, I think uh, it, it would be great to have, uh, you know, obviously a follow-up to to these uh to these discussions and in this particular topic so yeah for uh, sure. laura chambers thank you so so much yeah for thank you for having me